Late summer and fall are the time for picking blueberries, honey for mushrooms, and creating ready for winter. Gathering edible berries and plants has many benefits besides a great taste. Jackie Catalina, Tony Pirelli, and Dana Deal join me, your host Paul Torda, to discuss what their favorite edible and medicinal plants and mushrooms are, their uses, the physical and emotional benefits of foraging, and ethical considerations. Stay tuned for Outdoor Explorer. Welcome to our show on foraging. I'm excited to have Jackie Catalunya and Tony Pirelli with us on this segment. Jackie is a Community Development Manager at Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium. And Tony is an educator, craftsman, and a venture who spent a lot of time hunting mushrooms, among other things. Welcome to the show, uh, Jackie and, and Tony. Thank you. Hey, Paul. Thanks for having me. So, Jackie, let's start with you. Um, tell us a bit about yourself and um, your history with foraging. Yeah. Hello, Rick Ben. Catalina. Uh, hello, my Inupiaq name is Catalina. Nalarme Chiska Jackie Schaefer. My English name is Jackie Schaefer. Inupiaq, I am Inupiaq. Inupiaq, Kiki Tangurumi. I was born on the northwest coast of Alaska in a community called Kotzebue. So I was raised um, partially in Kotzebue and partially at Fish Camp. Um, my uh, early beginnings of foraging started when I was a toddler on the tundra um, behind our fish camp. And so um, my entire life has been a world of foraging. And, and I, I assume, um, like, where did you learn? I assume you're learning from your elders and your grandparents. Is that, is that right? Yes. So um, everything I've learned, all my knowledge base is traditional knowledge passed on from 15,000 years of ancestors, or we like to say 500 generations, and I'm another generation carrying on the traditions. So from my parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, um, uh, traditionally, we all um, learn on the land, on the water, um, from the birds in the air. So um, it really is kind of the symbiotic dance with nature. Thanks, Jackie. Tony, tell us about yourself and uh, how you got into um, foraging, uh, particularly for mushrooms. Oh, sure. And Jackie, that was really cool to hear how you got into foraging. Um, mine is uh, similar, although I don't know the history as much uh, beyond my grandmother. My grandma lived on the edge of the woods in northern Wisconsin, and she would spend lots and lots of time uh, walking the woods and old logging roads, and she collected mushrooms. And so for me, just taking along with grandma sort of started that that interest of uh, finding cool things in the woods. Thanks. Uh, let's uh, start a little bit about um, your, Tony, with you and, and talking about mushrooms. And I, I guess the next question, so you got started. So why do you continue? Like, what, why do you go out and look for these elusive? Yeah. Well, there, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of reasons I would say. Um, you know, one obvious reason is I'm excited about the food that, that mushrooms provide, both for, you know, a few calories and also for the flavor. Uh, the other one is I'm really interested in the connections that we can have with our place uh, by spending time in the woods and collecting them and, and, and eating them. Um, and I love that it's just another way to be out. And it's a way to be out where we're really practicing our awareness a little bit more than 
our speed and strength. And, and I really like that. It's just another way to be out and um, participating in the natural world that way. And yeah, oh. that's great. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Tony. Oh, I was going to add, and they taste really good if you know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Jackie, why don't, why don't you also talk a little bit about your motivations and, and interest in continuing to go and uh, gather things? Yeah. So, you know, like I said before, you know, I, I want to feel that responsibility to my tribe to continue um, the traditional aspect of, um, we don't say foraging, we say gathering, um, okay. but same, same. Um, so as we harvest our medicinal plants and um, our berries, um, certainly um, everything is seasonal to us and every season has a reason and it all is connected to food. And I love that Tony said that because to me, I have this analogy that I use when I'm picking a blueberry that I am a human energy form. And when I touch that living plant, I'm interacting. So we now are communicating to each other through our energy um, form. And then now I take that energy and that that plant gifts it to me. So I get to take that berry and I collect them, I bring them home and then I store them. And as, you know, when I store them, I get to share them. So that energy just mm. keeps on giving. And so I get to make things and share things. And so that one little aspect of starting with one blueberry and then I pick you know, between 10 and 30 gallons a season. Um, so it depends that I could share a lot if I get 30 gallons of blueberries and this year they're fabulous. So, um, so, so that is why I continue because that importance of um, not only being interconnected with nature, but being human living organisms within this beautiful ecosystem on our planet is something that I value. And so to me, the wellness piece of it is not only do you get physical exercise, but you get this spiritual and, um, uh, mental and you get all, everything your body needs in that one aspect of getting out there, right? So um, get in the outdoors and feel that because it is, it's powerful and it will change the way your body responds to feeling healthy. Earlier, Jackie, you talked about that a little bit about the sort of connection between um, health and what you are gathering. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. And, you know, and as far as gathering, you know, I gather um, seasonally. Um, you know, we have different plants traditionally that we gather in, in the spring um, and then in the summer and then in the fall and then in the late fall. And then we have some plants that even through the winter, we're able to collect them and use them as medicinal plants. Um, but the food piece of it um, aren't just the greens, but it, you know, the berries are a big part of Alaska. Um, and Alaska has an abundance of a variety of berries and they're all so healthy for you. Um, the comparison between wild berries and store-bought berries that are cultivated on a farm are, um, uh, you know, and then processed and um, preserved in a way that so they last a long time um, changes the the it basically kills the energy of the berry so you no longer have that dance <laughs> you're just eating nothing substance um, where whereas here we have the ability to not only share our knowledge but uh, share share that tradition 
and um, even Tony's story is a tradition. That's, you know, even if it started with your grandmother, it's something you could carry on for the next 500 generations if you keep that story alive and that story becomes the oral history. So to me, that is like the excitement part of it, right? This, that's what makes it so exciting. Do you know, speaking of the store-bought versus wild, um, let's pick a blueberry. Uh, do, have you seen any studies or anything of the different nutritional values between the two? Yes, and there are things that we don't even capture. Um, you know, something that we harvest are um, if the if the leaves don't bear fruit, we harvest the leaves for tea. So blueberries, I call them well cranberries, lingonberries, um, or blackberries, which tender blackberries are uh, crowberries. Crowberries. Uh, um, and so. If you collect the leaves, the leaves without fruit have 10 times the nutritional value of the berry. The berry wild versus um, cultivated or through agricultural manners on a farm um, has five times. So it just gets better and better. Um, and oh, so wow. to me, um, you know, we have to look beyond that. I think we can't, um, we can't get stuck in the, the numbers because to me, there, it's more than the nutritional value. So we have to go beyond that. It's the flavor, it's the connection, it's, it's all of that. But yes, um, the, the values just get higher the more foraging or into the woods you go, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think the communal part's very interesting. You know, also I, I find when we go berry picking, we're always with people. And it's an outdoor activity that is um, communal. It's not running through the mountains or traveling. You're sitting and talking and sharing stories. And I think that's a wonderful part of it also. Tony, when you're, uh, talk, let's talk about mushrooms for a minute. Um, well, we'll talk more. Um, you, you, do you have a seasonal flow to your picking? Like how, how do you go about um, planning your year around mushrooms? Yeah, uh, good question, and it's good timing because it's currently fall here in Alaska, and fall, the, the mushrooms that I focus on are primarily fall mushrooms, but there are some earlier ones, like morels, for example, uh, we'll find a lot of those in the spring, um, but the other ones I focus on are in the fall, so it's sort of nice to know, like, as spring's coming around, you get excited about morels, and as the morels are starting to turn off a little bit, you know that um, some lion's mane or the chanterelles or shaggy manes, um, you know, those are sort of starting to pick up in the fall. Yeah, great. Yeah. So it's a year, not, not a year round, obviously, but it's a, a, a full summer and fall um, effort for you. You know, it can be that spring and fall, especially, and I actually have thought about, you know, Southeast Alaska has, you know, a whole other set of mushrooms that we could be thinking about. And they get a little bit longer season than we do here in South Central. Okay, great. Uh, this is Outdoor Explorer. I'm Paul Tordak, your host. We're talking about um, gathering and foraging with Tony Prelli and Jackie Catalunya. Uh, Jackie, how about you? When, when we talk about berries, we think about uh, blueberries, but um, what other, and you mentioned some other berries, I guess, um, after we all could focus on blueberries, but uh, you know, after blueberries, uh, what's your best berry? What's your favorite berry? Or maybe, maybe, maybe there's a maybe it is something that you like more than blueberries. What's your how would you answer yeah. that? 
I will say that I that is not my favorite berry and berries uh -huh. are very seasonal and something I am learning more about is how our indigenous foods, the berries actually prepare our GI tract for foods that are coming seasonally so Interesting. Uh, the first berry to to come is the um, cloud berry. Um, which is a tundra berry and it is across the state right now it's at its end of its season it's the first summer um, berry late summer to early fall uh, it's an orange um, kind of sour apple tasting berry it's a very acquired taste but i grew up with it so it's it's one of my favorite and it's very seedy so it it um actually um kind of cleans your body out and gets your body ready for all the moose and caribou you're going to be digesting. Um, the next berry is the blueberry. Um, we have four berries in Northwest Arctic and those are, well, five, and those are the ones that uh, we really focus on. So we have the, the cloudberry, which we call tundra salmon berries. Um, and then we have the blueberries. And then we have the nagoon berries, which are like a wild raspberry, a um, little tartar. And then we have the moss berry or the crowberry or tundra blackberry. Everybody argues about names these days. And then we have the cranberry or the lingonberry. Now the black, the small blackberry, the crowberry and the um, cranberry tundra, we wait until after the frost because it changes the um, sweetness of the berry. And so, um, you know, and and it's interesting because we're all on this Zoom platform stuff these days. Everybody argues about names and this and that and the other. And really, it isn't about that. It's about whatever your, I mean, like, this is a very personal preference. We call our uh, cloud berries akbiks. And so akbiks are something that um, we use for many things. We use them for uh, pies and uh, muffins and jams and jellies and facial products and um, so every part of the berry is useful and uh, one salmon berry or a, a, maybe a, a few depending on the size has a much has as much vitamin c as as uh, an or, uh, 10 oranges so when you think about vitamin quantity depending on where you pick these um, cloud berries you get so much more vitamin c Plus you get all those other added benefits, right? So it's not just about that taste. It's about all those other things. Um, back to the blueberries. I have to gather at least 20 gallons every fall because we use them in our smoothies every morning. And there is a huge comparison between a wild blueberry in a smoothie and a store-bought blueberry, and it is not the same. So it's not only a nutritional thing, it's a flavor thing. And I'm sure Tony could relate to that. <laughs> right, right. The, the, and I wonder, I had a mentor of mine a long time ago who was talking about fish, but I, I always wonder if this has to do with berries too, is that the smaller the berry, or in this view, the fish, the better the taste. Uh, and and his, his uh, concept was that everything had an energy. You were born with a certain amount of energy, and that energy never it never grew or shrunk. And so the larger you got, the more energy was spread out among the, the item. And I was like, well, Willie, was that just sugar? Are you just talking about sugar? Is that the energy? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, that, I, I don't know, Jack, again, if there's any studies on that, of, of whether you know, why a, a wild berry has uh, just that much more potency um, than uh, a store-bought. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, we say we have a saying in the Arctic, in the Arctic region, everything has a shorter um, seasonal life, right? Uh, therefore, it has a shorter uh, root system. And therefore, everything's more potent because it's like this super growth and then it's gone, right? And yeah. so everything is like super dose. And so we, we caution people, especially with our medicinal plants, it's not the same. Our Arctic um, uh, wormwood is not the same as South Central. South Central has months to grow. In the Arctic, you have a couple months and it is like, boom, it's, it's grown and then now it's drying up. And so... Um, so, you know, it really just depends on, I would say, like, there's lots of resources out there to learn about that. And um, as far as bigger berries, uh, I'm sorry, I'm always going to be like bigger, better. Uh, that's <laughs> I don't, they don't taste different to me. <laughs> yeah, well, you get a bigger band for your buck. You yeah. know? That, <laughs> there that, you I, go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that would be the question that, um, you know, is what is the biggest band for your buck when it comes to berries? Is it a blueberry, do you think, or would you go for salmon berries, or what would you be your take on that? Uh, yeah. You know, so I think, yeah, I think right as far as berries go, you could get um, blueberries are preference-wise, so that would be a big bang for the buck as far as preference. But uh, the salmon berries in Southeast are are their preference. So it depends on where you are. Um, but say in South Central, uh, you could get both the crowberries and cranberries until November last year, I was picking in wow. Big Lake, yeah. crowberry, I mean, uh, cranberries in November because we had no snow. So you could pick and pick and pick and they are endless. And guess what? Yeah. They're back again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good year. What, um, besides berries, Let's and we'll get into the mushrooms a little bit more. But um, what other plants are you thinking about, Jackie? Do you like to gather? So I love to make teas. Um, and so, like I said, you know, I'm out picking berries. I always have a separate bag to pick those uh, leaves of the berries that don't have fruit. Um, you know, we have so much abundance of medicinal plants here that I, I, I'm going to just power through them. But if you yep. want more information, they could reach out to you and I'll share the information. So yep. we have um, the Labrador tea. We have the wormwood, which is the, we call it stinkweed. Um, stinkweed, it's kind of a wild sage. We have chaga that grows on the trees. Of course, we have the berries. We have fireweed. Um, we have rhodiola, which is a super, super power food. If you study up on rhodiola, we have wild mint. Um, we have wild yarrow. We have a false kind of chamomile um, called pineapple weed. Um, and that has a story. That's a cool story. Um, we have rose hips. Um, both the, you could do the blossoms as well as, I mean, these are plants that you could use all season. You start with picking the flowers and then you use the leaves for the tea and then you use the roots for um, other things. And, um, but the pineapple weed is an interesting one because the story behind it is it'll only grow where there's toxins and because it's trying to heal the earth. And so you'll see it like along runways and around, along roadways and driveways. And why? Because there's toxins. So it's trying to heal the earth. But that plant is like super healing for skin issues like eczema or 
uh, rashes um, or diaper rash for babies. So you could make all these salves and healing uh, oils that could be used. So yeah, there, Alaska has an abundance of plants and um, there are a lot of resources out there. Now there's regional resources um, that really apply to specific areas in the state. And um, yeah, the more you learn, uh, it's endless. It really is. Yeah, that's great. And we didn't bring up Devil's Club. Oh, and you know, Devil's my, Club, yeah. yeah, yeah you know, I, that's not a plant I normally use, but yes, Devil's Club. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those plants you wouldn't think of, of being useful, but it's uh, once you get past those thorns, it's uh, got a lot of, it's a, I bring in the ginseng family, so it has a lot of lot of medicinal and um, great attributes as a tea or a salve. Um, but this is, okay, and this is Paul Tordot, your host for Outdoor Explorer. We're talking about uh, gathering and foraging. Um, and I, my guest, I have uh, Tony Prelli and Jackie Catalunya with us. Uh, Tony, let's shift a little bit to mushrooms. Um, I guess, I, and this sort of goes to both of you about um, you know, one thing about mushrooms. I think about safety issues, um, and yeah. sort of how do you, how would you suggest someone go about learning how to uh, you know gather mushrooms safely? Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I know it's mushrooms are really intimidating to people for that way, that reason. Um, a couple ways, you know, I think one, like a lot of things we talk about in the outdoors is if you can get a mentor, maybe, maybe that's a family member or a friend. So a mentor is a great way to learn this stuff. Um, I took some workshops from a guy named Gary Larson. Uh, he's a professor up at UAF. Um, Gary Larson is super knowledgeable. He's a great presenter. And so I learned a lot about the safety from him. And then uh, a guy named David Aurora has some really great books. And so, you know, you get a hold of one or all of these resources and then just getting outside and, and going out with a goal of, of figuring some stuff out, interacting with, with the woods and the natural world and not necessarily having the goal of a great big meal. And the other thing, you know, as you start learning these things, even though the guidebook says it's considered edible, mushrooms are, are interesting. What's edible to you might not be edible for me. So if, if Paul and Jackie, if you, if you two come over to my house and I've got a huge, you know, mushroom meal, and if it's a mushroom you haven't eaten before, you might want to have just a really small amount. And if nothing went crazy with, it's mostly GI issues, if everything goes well, then maybe go hog wild on the leftovers, but you don't want your first meal of a specific mushroom to be a big meal. I've heard that uh, cooking mushrooms also make a difference in that and how you prepare them. Is that true? That's yeah, that's what I've read. And, and out of all the mushrooms that I've learned, I don't think there's any that uh, are considered edible raw. Ah, uh -huh. Yeah. So that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I know last year uh, with the Kenai fire, or that was two years ago. And so yeah. last year, there was a big morale season down there. And a lot of people were down there picking them. We did the same thing. And we would dry them. So we'd come back and dry the mushrooms. So any tips with that? Yeah. Preserving, preserving them, basically? Yeah, yeah. That was a great event, man. Uh, it's pretty cool how many people really focus on that one. Uh, Becky and I got, I think, 10 gallons um, on a wow. trip down there. Um, so drying is a great way. Um, I found that they're once dried and then, um, you know, rehydrated and cooked, 
I find they don't have nearly as much flavor. And that, that maybe relates to the stuff Jackie was talking about earlier about once things are processed are a little bit different. Um, we found this is, this is working with my buddy, Brad, who does a lot of this too. Brad actually happened because he was in a hurry to get out of the house and he had a bunch of mushrooms to deal with. He put them in a Ziploc, totally fresh from his, his gathering session, put them in a Ziploc, squeeze some air out and put them in the freezer just like that. And those mushrooms ended up um, cooking up way better uh, than our dehydrated ones. So that's kind of a win-win, you know, less work, less effort, but better results. Um, so freezing seems to work pretty well for morels. It works really well for um, hedgehogs and drying is, is something you can always do too. I've just found it's kind of robs a lot of the, the joy from the eating later on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'll actually, I'll give one little uh, postscript to that is that I've found if you have a bunch of dried mushrooms that you haven't gotten around to, um, I, I'll, I'll piggyback on what Jackie said too about those are great gifts. But if you're dying to eat them yourself, if you put them in a food processor and chop them up really small, they work like a really cool way to just be a seasoning rather than a main ingredient. Uh-huh. Great. Yeah. Let, let's talk about also berries. Oh, I actually come back for a second, Tony. Another question is if I was starting out on an uh, interesting mushroom, is there one particular one you would suggest focusing on? Yeah, cool question. And that would probably doing it that way is the way I would go about it too. Um, you know, morels are a good one to focus on. They, they have some lookalikes that you don't want to consume. But once you figure out a few main cues on the morels, either from your book or from your, your mentor there, um, another good one is hedgehogs. Hedgehogs is a really cool uh, little mushroom. Sometimes they're not little. They're, they're really fun to hunt because when you get onto some, you can get onto a lot. And they're also unique in that the underside of the cap of the hedgehog, um, it doesn't have gills. It has little hangy downy spikes instead. And so with a little bit of research, you can figure that part out. And all of the mushrooms in Alaska, as far as I understand from these books, all the mushrooms that have this identifier are safe to eat for most people. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So that, that's a good, safe, the hedgehogs are a really good, safe entry point. Um, and the morels can be too, with a little bit of guidance. And when are hedgehogs usually in season? Right now. Okay, so we're recording this in mid mid to late August. Okay. Good. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah, and and I've found them in the off season, like anything else. But um, kind of right now, and uh, August, September, uh, even in October. In fact, last year we picked a bunch at the end of October that were frozen as we picked them, and so they were uh, pretty unique to be picking frozen intact mushrooms from the ground. Wow, oh, that's great. yeah, yeah. Jack, what you're, uh, let's go back to you for a second, and then we'll, we'll take a, a break here in a, in a minute or two. Um, when you're thinking about, uh, a little bit, let's talk about um, preserving. Uh, let's talk about blueberries real quick. What's your preferred um, system? So I like to, um, you know, blueberries are used for so many things. Um, but, you know, like I said, we like to have them in our morning smoothie all winter long. So um, I prefer to just freeze them and to get as much air out as possible. 
um, the, you know, and even with plants, um, even if you're going to put a plant into oil, you want to make sure you leave it out for a couple of days to just get the moisture out. Um, mm -hmm. That's probably the best tip is uh, to not put your blueberries in the freezer too soon um, mm. because they still have all that. Well, to me, it's just energy, right? They're like still sweating. <laughs> they yeah. just came off the plant. Um, so just think about that. You know, they just need a little bit of um, a little bit of air to kind of just disperse that moisture and then um, remove as much air from the bag as you can before you put it in the freezer. I've seen folks put them in like straight from the berry bucket into bags, into the freezer, and they get this glaze of ice and they're like, I took all the air out. And, and really, it's not the air it's the berry is releasing um, this moisture and so and I'm not sure about mushrooms but I would say that most plants every single plant I use um, has that process and and sometimes you're picking and maybe you drive home two hours um, that probably isn't even enough time you probably need to leave it on the table for you know until bedtime or the next day to to kind of put them away um, but yeah, so, but you know, and then they could be preserved all different ways. Um, you know, you could can them, you could um, make jellies and pie fillings and whatever, you know, there's lots of good ways to preserve blueberries. But I would say that that is probably just remember that they, they need a little bit of sweating time. And do you rinse them before you so um, yeah. I grew up at fish camp. <laughs> yeah. So this is another big argument. Like I hear people say you have to soak them in a little bit of vinegar water and get all those worms out. And I'm like, what? Um, <laughs> as an indigenous person, um, which I guarantee like I never saw anybody, anybody at fish camp wash their berries. So, yeah. um, you know, I guess it would depend too. Are you like going where there's... Uh, risk of contamination uh, i don't know i guess that would be a question um you know i i usually go into the wilderness so i'm not worried um too much so no i personally don't wash my berries all right thank this is outdoor explorer we're talking about gathering and foraging we'll take a quick break and be uh, back with more you're listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. Find the show anytime as a free podcast in the iTunes store or connect with us online at alaskapublic.org. Welcome back. I'm your host, Paul Torlap, and this is Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. I have Tony Pirelli and Jackie Catalunya with us. Uh, Tony, you mentioned during the break about bang for your buck, and you had a particular mushroom in mind. Do you want to expound on that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, thanks, Paul. You know, there's that idea of that you're talking about earlier with sometimes something smaller has a little bit more potency of, of flavor energy. And although they're tiny, the winter chanterelle has been a super fun one for me. It's it's really small, which means that your awareness has to be really tuned in when you're looking around for them. But once your eyes are turned on to find them, you start finding them. And they're, they're one of the more tasty and one of the more beautiful little tiny mushrooms uh, I've come across. Like how tiny? What size are you talking? Oh, their, their caps, the ones I'm finding, are a little bit bigger than 
maybe a quarter to uh, maybe a silver dollar at, for a okay. big one and maybe uh-huh. two inches high inch inch to two inches high huh yeah. yeah let's talk a bit more about safety uh in both with plants and and uh mushrooms um i guess tony let's start with mushrooms uh, talked about that a little bit. Are there particular things that you're really uh, are uh, easy to avoid, or um, how how do you go about um, looking for poisonous um, mushrooms and avoiding them? Yeah, I would say the first kind of way to think about that is picking one or two species that have a couple of cues that are fail-safe cues. So earlier we mentioned those hedgehog mushrooms, they're one um, that's in the family called Heresium, I believe. And it has a couple other mushrooms that have that same formation underneath the cap where you can tell that this is definitely this type of mushroom. So I think focusing on a few mushrooms that have some fail-safe cues and learning those cues and then once you get comfortable with those ones, you know, digging back into the books or taking a workshop to get into other mushrooms as well. Great. Yeah. And Jackie, let's talk about plants a bit. Um, are there you know, plants to avoid? Yes, there are plants to avoid, and it depends on the season. Um, you know, devil's club shoots are used. Um, so devil's club is an interesting plant. Um, in South Central, it is prevalent, but it starts off as this cute little shoot and then it grows. So um, I would say um, really study and look at the resources available in your region um, because every region is different and the plant changes over time. Uh, you certainly don't want to go get stuck in a grove of devil's club when it's uh, fall time. Um, chances are you're going to walk away in a lot of pain. But interesting enough, had you shaved off all that uh, prickly stuff and used the, the stock for salve, you could heal yourself. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I would say the hardest thing is um, really the plant lookalikes. I know, he, you know, you mentioned the mushroom lookalikes. Well, plant lookalikes in Alaska, there are many. And so um, I would say don't harvest unless you know. And I use leaves as identifiers. Um, there are a lot of red berries. Uh, if you look at the leaves, they're all different. Um, there are a lot of blueberries that we all call blueberries, but they could be huckleberries or um, there's all kinds of other berries that are the color blue. And so um, I would say just look for resources. And like um, Tony said, pick something that is easily identified both by the leaf and the berry and stick with that and then grow your knowledge. And so don't try to just go foraging and pick everything you see and think it's okay because chances are you might run across something that is not okay. I've always heard that it's, if you're unsure, well, don't, like I said, but maybe you're pretty sure, but there's a little seed of doubt in your mind uh, that you could just taste a little bit and, typically you'll know right away um, that many of those poisonous plants are not, don't taste good. Do, is that ring a bell? Yeah, well, and too, you know, it, it may just be the time of year. Now, um, there's, along the coast of Alaska, there are these sweet peas that are beach peas mm-hmm. that change color over time. Um, you know, they're harvested and eaten in the spring and summer. But as fall comes around and they start, basically rotting 
because they're at the end of their life, um, they're not very easy on your stomach. And so that plant is not necessarily poisonous, um, no different than soap berries. They're called soap berries because of the high pectin. They're like washing your stomach with soap. If you eat a bunch of them, guess what? Whoo, you have a bunch of foamy soap berries in your belly. So it's not poisonous. It could be used as a, a you know, additive for jams if you didn't want to use store-bought pectin, but just knowing your plants. Um, so it comes back to that. Do, do you really know enough about this plant to put it into your body? Um, you know, grow your base slowly and learn your plants and learn to identify the differences and then share that knowledge with your friends because you're going to take your friends out there anyway, right? Do you have any such sort of plant safety? Um, I always think about bears. So how do you, when you're out picking blueberries, manage the whole, you know, potential animal encounter? Do you have someone again, watching? My, or, yeah, yeah. So my perspective is, again, this camp girl perspective, uh, you know, look around. If there's bears out there, don't go pick berries. Um, yeah. You know, if you're going to go to a place that you're not familiar with, um, identify your escape route if you have to get back to your car quickly. It might not be a bear. It might be a rabid fox or it might be a, a, a crazy squirrel that just won't let you go, you know. <laughs> um, so you never know. It could be a bird. Um, so you can't just think bears. You have to think all creatures. You're in their environment. So remember that. And remember, if you want to do it safely, um, you know, I mean, I hear people say, bring bear spray, bring a gun, bring this, bring your dog. Um, you know, when you're in nature, uh, nature has its own sounds and we'll be the unfamiliar sound. So be loud, um, sing, clap your hands once in a while, do things that you normally do, um, and then listen to your senses. If, if you're, the hair on the back of your neck rises, chances are uh, pick up that bucket and go back to your car. Um, and you don't need reason why, because those berries are gonna be there tomorrow. Um, but remember that you're in wilderness, it's their environment, not yours. That's great advice. What about um, ethics of overpicking? Is there do you have a rule of thumb of how much you would pick off a particular area or a particular plant? Um, you know, actually, I just um, reminded someone this morning that you know, our indigenous value system is an honor system. We are very grateful to be part of an ecosystem called planet Earth. And therefore, we are not just um, on top of this planet. We are in, with living within as part of the ecosystem. And honoring that, um, treat the plants and even animals, um, no matter what you you know harvest or forage, um, no different than you'd want to be treated. Uh, you don't want to uh, intentionally trample things. Uh, and I say treated, and I, I got called out this morning. They said, but physically, really, you're going to, I wouldn't want to be plucked as a berry and turned into jam. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, but this is like on a spiritual level. So it's more like energy, right? Back to that energy level. And so we have uh, these kind of guidelines, you know, pick two, leave one. Um, if there's, you know, if it, it looks like there is, uh, um, you know, damage to that area, um, go somewhere else, um, you know, and it really comes back to what Tony said, you know, like we're interacting with nature, 
um, we have to be aware. So use that awareness to kind of guide you. Um, you know, over harvesting, you can over harvest and you could be very crude when you harvest because I've seen people leave destructive paths behind them. But the bottom line is, is we're very fortunate in Alaska that so far everything comes back. Um, you know, if you see somebody doing something, it's okay. It's okay to say, you know what, that's not, that's not how we do things here. We want this to continue for 500 generations. Could you please just do it a little gentler? <laughs> so the guidelines are just treat everything like you would like to be treated. So. Yeah, the golden rule. And Tony, how about mushrooms? I, I know that um, I'm, I've been sworn to secrecy about uh, one of your favorite spots, but uh, what, what, what are some of the rules of the road for picking mushrooms? Yeah, I mean, Jackie uh, laid out some pretty great rules. And I would just add, uh, and, you know, same thing, but in other words, you know, for out there, with respect and gratitude, you know, how do you, how do you act if you respect something and have some gratitude for it? And, you know, there are some mushrooms where it, it looks like an ideal mushroom to put in your gathering basket. You cut it and right after you cut it, you realize, oh man, it's full of worms. And I, we have a practice of either setting it back where it was. So it's still, you know, some people are out there just excited to see the mushrooms because they're so beautiful. So I'll set it back and it still looks beautiful or I'll put it in a spot in the forest where it's sort of out of sight. You know, a lot of mushroom pickers will take those mushrooms that they picked and are then discarding and they'll just kind of leave them in broken bits all over. And, and so I think about that leave no trace idea of, I don't want people to walk by and tell that I was there doing what I was doing just because that, I don't want to degrade their experience. That's right. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, finally, let's talk about resources. What are some of the uh, resources available for people that are out there? Tony, do you want to start? Sure. Well, you know, the, the top one, I would say, maybe with some categories here, if you want to get excited about mushrooms, there's a really cool uh, film called Fantastic Fungi. Um, that one is just good entertainment and a little bit of knowledge. Uh, ADF and G has a really useful pamphlet. And that's one of the ones that I started with. That's a freebie that you can get on their website. Um, David Aurora has some of the best, uh, field guides for, uh, mushrooms for the Pacific Northwest in particular. And Gary Larson has an Alaskan mushroom book as well as workshops. And I can send you all those links. That one, we'll have those on our website for the listeners. And Jackie, how about some resources from your perspective? Yeah, there, there are some great resources for um, uh, regional plants in Alaska. And um, uh, the uh, Herbal Boreal does um, the plants. It's actually written in northern Canada, but it covers a lot of our plants here in um, Alaska. And I'll, I'll make sure you get links to all of those, the names and titles and authors of those books. Um, th there is also um, a book by um, put out by the Regional Health Organization in Northwest Arctic um, called um, Plants That We Eat. And um, it has everything. And I think there are a few mushrooms in there as well. I haven't ever um, explored. Um, and then one just came out for the YK Delta. And so again, I go back to, um, I can't remember the one for South Central, but there is one for South Central. Uh, it might even be on the website for South Central Foundation who 
hosts an annual plant symposium. Um, that is really wonderful because you not only get to learn about the plants, but you actually get to learn about preservation and these um, value guidelines, as well as safety, as well as interacting with the plant and making salves and teas and so on. Great, great. Well, thank you very much for both of you for being on the show with us. I've been uh, talking with uh, Tony Pirelli and Jackie Catalunya. Uh, again, thanks for being on the show with us. Yeah, thanks Thank for you, having Paul. us, Paul. Yep, thanks. We'll take a short break and be back uh, with more on gathering and um, foraging. Stay with us. Welcome back to Outdoor Explorer. This is your host, Paul Tordat. We're talking about gathering and foraging and time for a wonderful fall season. Uh, for this segment, I'm happy to have Dana Deal on our program. She works with the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium. Welcome back to the show, Dana. Thanks for having me. Dana, why don't we start with a little bit about your experience and how um, you um, were introduced to a gathering and some of your personal experiences. Well, I think I've uh, always had a deep appreciation for the plants and the lands and the animals. I grew up in a community called Antioch in Western Alaska, and my, both my parents were avid outdoors people. Um, so they were gardeners, but they also were foragers and they would take us out on the river, the Kuskokum River, and we would go berry picking. Um, oftentimes fishing, uh, hunting, we would do everything with them. And so I've always had just a deep appreciation and interest in being on the land. Um, my parents also are avid gardeners. They have quite a few different garden plots out in Antioch to grow their own food. So although I didn't enjoy gardening growing up, especially the weeding, um, as an adult, I've really grown to enjoy it uh, because it helps create and sustain that connection to the, the land and the food that you eat. Um, and just as I've grown throughout the years, having that connection has really been amplified by working for the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium because I've had the wonderful opportunity to be able to join what we call Alaska Plants' Food and Medicine Symposiums across different regions throughout Alaska. Um, and during those symposiums, I've been able to listen to and hear our elders talk about traditional uses of our plants um, and berries. Uh, both medicinal and food uses. And so that really has um, sparked more interest uh, from my perspective to continue learning um, all of that historical knowledge or as much of it as I can learn from our elders that are continuing to teach it today. Um, and, you know, fall time, it's just a, a wonderful time to be out harvesting in Alaska. And so um, I've just always enjoyed the scenery, the connection to land and being able to use the um, delicious and healthy foods that we're able to gather, especially from where I am today, which is in Eagle River. When you were growing up, what were some of the plants, I'm assuming blueberries, they seem pretty ubiquitous, but what are some other plants that you remember um, gathering? Yeah, we definitely did berry picking. So we um, have wonderful berry picking spots for blueberries uh, along the Kuskokum River in Antioch. Um, so we harvested those, but we also picked uh, what we called wild rhubarb um, and kind of early summertime, the wild rhubarb, you can just pick from, you know, right, right out your house 
and you peel the um, skin off of it and can just eat it raw like that or dip it in sugar and eat it with a little bit of sugar to help balance out the sour taste. Um, we also would put it in agurak or Eskimo ice cream and eat it that way. So wild rhubarb was one that I really enjoyed growing up. Um, another one that was pretty, that is really common actually from that area is called wormwood or stinkweed. We call it jaihluk in Yupik. Um, in some places they refer to it as native medicine. And growing up, we used that in the steam house um, for uh, kind of alleviating congestion, respiratory congest congestion, but also for sore muscles. So um, I remember using that one in the steam, but also my mom would um, steep it as a tea. And then when we were coming down with a cold, she would give like a tablespoon to us um, and have us drink that as a way to help cure the cold. So I would say wormwood rhubarb um, were some of the more common ones that I grew up around in that area. Um, but we also would have uh, Labrador tea or tundra tea as well as kind of a nice little treat alongside our traditional dishes like uh, fish head soup or moose soup. We'd have a little cup of tea, Labrador tea with it. Were those teas as a child, were you like, oh, it's medicine or was it like, yum, it's good? I, you know, when I was a kid, the um, Jaihluk tea or the wormwood tea, that one, it's definitely an acquired taste. I did not enjoy it because it tended to be quite bitter. Um, but the Labrador tea, I really liked, uh, and I still do today because it's, if you don't steep it too long, it's got um, somewhat of a mild flavor and it smells really good. So that one I never minded. And we would just have a little bit because both of those are very strong. Um, but yeah, the wormwood, today I enjoy it, but as a kid, not the kid right. I did not. I would... I was the kid that would keep my mouth closed before I um, was forced to get a spoonful. Yeah. When you garden and you talk about your parents' gardening, do they utilize any of the native plants? Um, what's in their garden that might be something besides lettuce and so forth? Yeah, in my garden, I have just the traditional like carrots and potatoes. Um, but I've added a couple traditional plants, um, including wormwood. I really uh, enjoy using wormwood as a tea now, um, just for general health. So I added um, wormwood or jaihluk to my garden. Um, and then I've tried to add other things like um, wild raspberries. They have not quite taken off yet, but I've added other things like that. Um, and I'm just kind of experimenting to see what will grow and in that particular area because um, oftentimes when you plant them in an in a area with, that's not familiar to them, it's harder for them to continue to grow. Um, so wormwood's the only one I've added to my garden. Um, and are, as far as uh, gathering around, um, you know, South Central here, have you picked up any other um, things that you like? Yeah. Um, in the South Central area, there's quite a bit of nettle that you can find too. So stingy nettle and that particular plant I've really grown to enjoy as a tea because I like the taste of it. Um, and I use it because it's uh, said to help with inflammation and I've got arthritis in my ankle. So I like to use it as a tea for arthritis, but it's also um, high in iron. So I um, think it's just generally good for women to have. So. Um, nettle is one that I harvest here in the South Central area and also fireweed. Um, you look outside and fireweed is everywhere in South Central Alaska. 
and it's a very delicious tea as well. So that's another one that I tend to harvest in this area. Um, specifically just the leaves I like to use for tea, um, but I'll add some of the blossoms as well, just for that nice and extra kind of floral scent in my teas. So fireweed, I think, and nettle are two in this area that I've started to learn a bit more about and really enjoy working with. Thanks. Let's uh, talk a bit about ethics um, and some of the sort of practices that you can share with folks. Yeah, thanks for um, bringing that up, Paul. I think something I've really appreciated learning as part of these Alaska Plants is Food and Medicine Symposiums um, is some of the tips that elders have shared about how to uh, go about ethical harvesting so that we're respecting the land, but also ensuring we're sustaining our plants for generations to come. Um, so a few things that I've learned over the years, specifically from our, from our elders, is one to just be a good steward of the land, sea, and air and respect the land um, that you're on. So whenever I go out and do any harvesting, um, one of the first things that I always do is just think the land that I'm on, but also the plant that I'm um, harvesting. So when I take a berry, for instance, I thank the berry for giving um, themselves to me and tell, tell it what we're going to use it for. Um, so for instance, if we're gonna use the berries for like a pie or something, I always try to tell the berry what it'll actually be used for later. Um, so being in relationship with the plants in the land is something that's really important within the Alaska Native community and respecting it and thanking it for um, what they're giving to us is part of ethical harvesting. Um, a couple other things that have been taught to us are just to be really cautious um, before you go out harvesting, know what you're looking for um, and have good intentions and a good plan. So knowing that you should always be positively identifying a plant before harvesting, um, just for safety reasons, obviously. Um, and then being aware of what some of the lookalikes are and then some of the invasive plants. Um, so being real careful before you even go out to do your own research to know um, exactly what you're looking for is important in terms of ethics. Um, just a few other things. We're always told not to over harvest too. Um, so when we go out, elders teach us to be very intentional and only take what we need. Right. Um, so if we know we're not going to be able to clean all of our berries or if um, there's any potential for waste, don't get more than you need. So um, that's one of the main, I think, points in terms of ethical harvesting is being really intentional about how much you're gathering and only take what you need from the land. That's, uh, that's great. Yeah, I, I think the idea of um, having knowledge of a, a plant or an animal and or a place really translate to caring about it and then that uh, care translates into uh, conserving it and, and and looking after the area or the spot or the particular plant uh, for, uh, for the longevity and making it sustainable mm -hmm. um, or the use of it sustainable. Let's move to resources. Um, uh, can you uh, maybe share some resources for folks that are available through NTHC or other um, outlets? Yeah, ANTHC has quite uh, a few resources that are really helpful for um, getting to know the Alaska native plants uh, across our state. 
Um, one of them that has been around for a while is called the Traditional Food Guide for Alaska Native Cancer Survivors. Um, it's a booklet that was designed for um, cancer survivors, but it, it's really beneficial to anyone that wants to learn about um, our native foods, including plants and berries and some of their traditional uses. Um, it also has a section with nutritional information as well. Um, and then there's a section with recipes. So the traditional food guide um, can be ordered on our website, anthc.org. That I think is one of the best resources that we have because elders also contributed to um, the content of that publication. Um, another one that's easily accessible are our store outside your door webisodes. Those can be found on our ANTHC YouTube channel and store outside your door um, promotes ethical um, hunting, fishing and gathering. And it's a series of webisodes that walks you through how to use different plants um, or animals in a traditional way and a contemporary way. So there are some kind of um, recipes that are more modern and then some that are very traditional to Alaska Native people. Um, one that I just watched the other day is how to make fireweed tea with just fresh fireweed leaves. Super simple. Um, webisode is, I think, three minutes long. And so those are easy educational uh, online uh, webisodes that you can watch through ANTHC. Um, in addition to that, I think you know, Paul, uh, every fall semester we host a class at APU. It's a one credit elective course called Alaska Native Plants and Traditional Uses. So um, we're set for this year, but if anyone's interested in taking that course next year, it'll likely happen again in the fall time. And that's um, a real high level introduction to Alaska Native plants and their traditional uses. Um, so those are some of the, the resources that we've got, but there are many books and publications out there that talk about plants within specific regions. Um, I've seen a book for the Northwestern part of Alaska. I think it's called Plants That We Eat. There's um, the Southwest areas got their own series of books. So there are a lot of resources out there and I encourage people to use them because they're really helpful um, in just getting to know some of the basics about our plants and our traditional uses. That's really interesting. I'll look forward to seeing some of those webinars. And uh, well, Dana, that sort of wraps up our time. I appreciate you sharing uh, very briefly uh, some of your experiences and the resources available. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Paul. Happy harvesting. Yeah, same to you. Thanks for listening to my guests, Jackie Catalonia, Tony Perley, and Dana Deal for joining us and sharing their experience and knowledge. Also, thanks to our producer, Eric Bork. This is your host, Paul Twardock, and from all the hosts at Outdoor Explorer, we'll see you in the blueberry bushes. Outdoor Explorer is a production of KSKA Public Radio in Anchorage, Alaska. Theme music is by Portugal, the man. Views expressed are those of the participants and do not reflect the station or its underwriters. You can find Outdoor Explorer on Facebook and in your favorite podcast app. To see what's coming up on Outdoor Explorer and add your voice to the conversation, go to our website at alaskapublic.org. Life Informed, this is Alaska Public Media.